0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So firstly from Nehemiah chapter 9, 1 to 7. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were... They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of the heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And now Nehemiah chapter nine, verses 16 to 19. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love." Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of the cloud did not fail to guide them or their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. Nehemiah chapter 9, 26 to 28. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, from heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. They, then you handed them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion You deliver them time after time. Nehemiah chapter 9, 38, and then verses 10 to 1. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah.
1: Thanks, Rebecca. Great. Let me pray. Good to be with you. Let's take a moment. Father, we thank you for your word, this ancient word which has relevance for today. We pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be our guide and our teacher, and you'd bring us to Jesus, that we might be more like him and might adore him more, because we spent this 25 minutes reflecting on his word. In his name we pray, amen. So this is our last in the series of Nehemiah, and it's part two of this, how does the, the book of Nehemiah finish? We looked at a holy people last week. We're looking at a renewed people this week. You may have heard me use this quote before. It's a great quote. You can never hear it too many times. It's from the very famous Russian novelist and social reformer, Leo Tolstoy he said this everyone thinks of changing the world but no one thinks of changing himself he wrote a big pamphlet in the in 1900 called three methods of reform and the longer quote goes like this there can be no there can only be one permanent revolution a moral one the re- regeneration of the inner man how is this revolution to take place Nobody knows how it will take place in humanity, but every man feels it <clears throat> clearly in himself. And yet in our world, everyone thinks of changing humanity, and no one thinks of changing himself. <clears throat> Tolstoy was a social reformer as well as a brilliant novelist, and he knew that lasting change in a society would never come about ultimately through social or political change. He said that's an external way to change the world. It may have its place, but it won't bring the lasting evolution he says which is always a moral one the regeneration of the inner man and he says everyone thinks about changing the world the social and the politics and we have all got opinions on that he says no one thinks about changing the attitudes of the heart and so in other words there's something and we looked at this last week the tendency of every human heart is to focus on external change appearances structures policies behaviors actions they have their place those changes but if we fail, if we only focus on external change and fail to look at what's going on inside, attitudes, motivations, ambitions, fears, joys, passions, he says no lasting change will ever happen. Tolstoy, like many social reformers before and after him, knew that lasting change would not happen through change in structures and policies, though that was important too. It would come through the change of the human heart. And that brings us nicely to a a great reformer in the 5th century before Christ called Nehemiah. This is the final week in our series. If you're just joining us, this is how the story goes so far. In the 5th century BC, the city walls of Jerusalem were in disrepair, and the Jewish people were in great disgrace and trouble. They'd returned from exile in Babylon, uh, but were small, fragile, scattered, and afraid. God stirs up the heart of a leader, Nehemiah, to come and regalvanize and remobilize the people to rebuild the city walls. And despite varied and intense opposition to this building project, we have this stunning verse in chapter 615, which says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, which is the Jewish calendar, in the 52 days. 52 days it took to rebuild the city walls. But well, that's only Nehemiah chapter 6 15. There's 13 chapters. We are literally bang in the middle, halfway through the book. Rebuilding the city wall of Jerusalem was only half the job. The bigger job, which didn't involve external change in bricks and mortar, was the transformation of the people's heart. So, our series that we're finishing today rebuild and renew. Rebuilding the city walls, we're coming together again as God's people after COVID but also reconnecting to God in our hearts. Despite the fact that the people were back in the city, despite the fact that the city walls had been rebuilt, the people's hearts were not fully committed to the Lord. There was compromise, there was impurity within the people. So I said last week, the bigger issue was not the disrepair of the city walls, but the disrepair of the people's hearts. So the second half of the book of Nehemiah is asking this question, what kind of people are going to live behind the city walls? From outside the walls, looking in, if you're one of the foreign nations, you go, wow, they're very externally impressive. Maybe they're intimidating. But that was a human perspective. From God's perspective on the inside of the city, their hearts were compromised. There was a number of idols that had been brought into the city from outside that were polluting it. The first half of the book of Nehemiah, fortify the city. The second half of the book of Nehemiah, let's make this a holy nation set apart for the Lord. So last week we said it would very easily, uh, it would be very easy for, that, for the people in the city to be busy. Isn't it easy to be busy in church? Busy in your life. I'm doing all the right things that a Christian is supposed to do. The Jewish people were just busy in the city. And God says, yeah, busyness, nah, I'm not too interested in that. What I'm interested in is godliness in all of life. Every part of your life is lived for me. Whether you're in the city walls or outside of the city walls, you're living every part of it. There's a great trap there for all of us. Hey, I'm doing the right things a Christian's supposed to do. I'm busy. And God says, yeah, but what about your heart? You can be externally impressive, but are you internally compromised? So the question today is how does real, lasting, internal change happen in our lives through the gospel? That's the question. How does real and lasting, internal change happen through the gospel? Not religious change, which is always... Religious change is temporary change, focused on behaviours, and it feels like really hard work. That's religious change. Gospel change is lasting, it is joyful, it comes through repentance and faith, and it always tastes sweet. So how does it come about? Nehemiah 9 says gospel change that is not full of hard work but tastes sweet comes about through knowing your true identity through grace, confessing the sin beneath the sins and committing once again to the Lord and his people. Do you Want true, lasting, joyful, sweet-tasting change in your life? How does it come about, Steve? Nehemiah 9 says, through knowing your true identity through grace, confessing the sin beneath the sins, and committing once again to the Lord and his people. So know your true identity through grace. In our modern globalised world, in a city like Dublin, you see this all the time, it's increasingly tricky for people to answer this question. Where are you from? When people ask me where I'm from, given my English accent, they assume I'll say the UK. And I do say the UK, that's where I think I'm from. And yet, I was born in Uganda, Hmm, birthplace, Uganda. My dad's Irish, my mum is English, so two different DNAs going on there. I was raised in Birmingham, so in the Midlands of the UK, but I spent all of my adult life and had kids and got married and had my first jobs in Leeds, so I was, that's in the north of England, so am I really from Leeds? And now Leanne and I have lived here as long as we've lived anywhere else together, and we plan to live here, God willing, to the rest of our days, so Dublin is now our home. So am I from Uganda, Birmingham, Leeds, or Dublin? Hmm. And you ask my kids the question, where are you from? And it will change on the time of the year. If Six Nations Rugby is happening, they are definitely green. But if the European Football Championships are happening, they're definitely white, because there's nothing to support in green. <laughs> so we definitely have our cake and eat it, and a mixed identity can be a blessing in sports. But for many people, it's a tricky question. Where are you from? As one person who is a member of a visible ethnic group says the question is often followed by, but where are you really from? You see, in modern global cities, ethnicity, birthplace, and where you live are very very rarely, well, often aren't aligned. So, but it's an important question we all need to answer because without a sense of origin, we lack a sense of identity. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know who you are. One people group in history that was struggling with the questions of origin and therefore identity were the small, fragile, depressed, and fearful 5th century B.C. people of God. Where have we come from? Exile? Is that our identity? Who are we there for? What happens in Nehemiah chapter 9 is now what well, Ezra actually gives them an origin story to help them know who they are. Once you know where you've come from, you know who you are. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra recites the history that people have in God before the exile. Starting, if you listen to what Rebecca was saying there, from the creation of the world. Then God choosing Abraham. Then delivering out of Egypt and, and the, the, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. Then his protection and guidance in the wilderness. Then taking them to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with them under Moses, the Ten Commandments. Then taking them into the Promised Land, the land of milk and honey through Joshua. It's a wonderful story of origin. God choosing a people for himself that they might be and bring the blessing of God to all nations on earth. And it's a story of God's faithfulness to the covenant he makes with his people. This, Nehemiah is saying, is your origin. And therefore, this is now your identity. And yet, if you read chapter 9, time and time again, we read the people forgot who they were. And they decided to create another story for themselves about their origin and identity, based not on grace, but on works. Based not on what God said about them, but what they felt. Based not on what the promises that God had for them and what God was calling them to, but just based on what they wanted because of what the nations around them were doing. So as you read Nehemiah chapter 9, two things emerge. The faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of the people of God. God saved the people, called them into a covenant with himself, and time and time again the people failed to obey the covenant. Again, we read again and again that they messed up, they rebelled, they turned away, they made idols, they got complacent, they became arrogant, they were disobedient, they committed awful blasphemies. I'm just picking out the expressions from Nehemiah 9. Time and time again, their lives ended up in a pit as they sought to establish their own story by works rather than live in the story they were given by grace. And time and time again, as they end up in a pit, they cry out to God and God has mercy. The story of the people of Israel told in Nehemiah 9 is a famous story summarised by the Apostle Paul that says this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Through the years, the sin of the people was piled up. It got bigger. The blasphemies got more awful. The idolatry became more clear. Sin increased. And through the years, as God forgave them, grace increased all the more. And so Ezra the scribe, a contemporary reformer to Nehemiah, says, can I remind you of your story and therefore your origin and therefore your identity? Now let's think for a minute about identity and the stories of identity, ancient and modern. It's a big question. Who am I? Traditional identities came through duty and the role you played in the community. So traditional identities were outward-looking. This is my role, this is my family, this is who I am, as I play my role in my community. Modern identities are inward-looking. Be true to yourself. Trust your heart. Go with what you feel. Let your feelings decide who you are. You don't look outward, you look inward. Traditional identities came about obeying the rules. This is the rules the community has given you, your family, your wider society, and now you need to play your part and be a good community member. So conformity and community were king. And the heroes of ancient cultures, we know the stories, were those that self-sacrificed themselves for the community because their identity was the community. Modern identity stories say, no, 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 don't obey the rules. Create your own rules. Decide for yourself what your role is going to be. Autonomy, authenticity, and individuality are king, not the community and conformity. The hero of today's society is not the person who self sacrifices but the person who self-asserts. I'm being what my inner feelings tell me to be, and I'm conforming my world to those inner feelings. Self-assertion. I find myself not in giving myself to something outside of myself, but self-expression of something inside me. Both... Traditional and modern ways of forming an identity have strengths and weaknesses, but both have the same underlying flaw. Identity, both of these ancient and modern ways of forming identity, say, is something you have to do. Identity comes by works. You create it, whether from conformity to something outside or self-expression to something inside. It's on you. And we feel the weight, don't we? And we'll get advertising and marketing to tell us we're not living up to the story. That's all marketing and advertising is, right? Playing into that latent sense of inadequacy that we're not who a society or we think we should be. And we need to go and buy this or do this. And then we'll become who we're made to be. Now, we don't have time to look at it in detail. But if your identity is something you achieve... leads to all kinds of problems. Paralysis, anxiety, discontent, personal striving, relational competition. Looking to create an identity for yourself in the end always leads to two things. Personal slavery as you work so hard to achieve that identity and interpersonal animosity as you're threatened by anyone who has a different identity story and you feel threatened by them. Nehemiah 9 says there's a third way Not the ancient way of finding identity. Not the modern way. It comes through the gospel. It's not looking outward. It's not looking inward. It's looking upward. This is an identity that is not achieved, but is received. It doesn't come by works. It is given by grace. If Nehemiah 9 teaches anything, it teaches us that left to our own devices, we make a mess of things. Left to our own devices, we create our own stories that lead us into pit after pit. But the good news is, is that when sin increased, grace increased all the more. Why is this so important? The only way that true and lasting, and joyful, and sweet-tasting change will come into your life is if you give up trying to establish your own identity through works, and accept one that is given you by God through grace. And then there's rest in the heart. You're released from being a slave and you don't feel threatened and in competition with everyone around you. The story of Nehemiah 9 doesn't stop there, does it? 500 years later, another reformer would come to represent us. Where we failed to live the story God chose for us, he lived it perfectly. When we failed to be faithful to the covenant, he was perfect. He was obedient. He trusted fully. He lived freely and lightly and joyfully in submission to his father. And yet he was punished. He was cut out of the story so you and I can be written back in. The people in Nehemiah's day had a wonderful story of grace. We have a better one. We have Jesus and his blood and his promises. We have the Spirit and his power and his companionship. We have the Father and his love and his protection and his security. We have a better story. They had a good one. We have a better one. An identity as sons and daughters of the King of Kings through the cross of Christ. You want lasting change? Know your true identity through grace, not in what you do, not in the role you play, not in what you feel, not in your ability to self-sacrifice or self-assert, but because you are chosen and loved and saved and cherished and restored and blessed by the King of all kings. That's who you are. That's your origin story. That's when you answer the question, who am I? I'm a child of the King. One of my favourite books and favourite quotes comes from Jim Packer, in his classic, it's a bit of an old book now, called Knowing God. The longest chapter in the book is called Sons of God. It's all about adoption. Very famous chapter. He says this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, and his whole outlook in life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Closeness, affection, generosity at the heart of this relationship. This is my bit. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Who are you? You're right with God the judge through Christ. But you're loved and cared for by God the Father. You were adopted. That's how lasting... As soon as you get that identity and let it sink into your heart and stop trying to find one outside, stop trying to find one inside, but find one that's given from above, lasting change will start to happen in your life. Know your identity through grace. Secondly, confess the sin beneath the sins. What do I mean by that? A religious person confesses sin. The Pharisees confessed sins. What do I mean by that? Well, they focused on outward behaviors that were wrong. They had a list of what was the right way to live and a list of what was the wrong way to live. And when they got it wrong, yeah, they said sorry. They didn't know... And Jesus goes after them for this. Confess their attitudes, their motivation, their thoughts, their desires, their ambitions, when those were not aligned with God. As long as externally the lists that they'd created from themselves of what was right and wrong were sorted, well, that's all they needed to confess and say sorry for. But a gospel person confesses the sin behind the sins. As you read Nehemiah 9, the big problem that meant the people couldn't be obedient to the covenant was not sins, but the sin of idolatry. Most clearly shown when they made a golden calf, a pathetic thing, and started to worship it and said, this is the thing that brought us out of Egypt. And we'd look at it and we go, how ridiculous. And God says, yeah, that's how we all are. We create idols. What is idolatry? It's building your identity on anything besides God. It's finding significant satisfaction and worth in anything other than God. An idol idol is something you trust and love that gives you meaning and purpose and security. It's our idols, our counterfeit gods, that drive and determine our behavior. What your heart loves, your mind will find reasonable, your emotions desirable, and your will doable. It's what you love and your worship that determines your life. Why do we do the things we do? Because something inside us is driving us. What's driving us? A God. The real one or a false one. So, if your idol is people's acceptance, you will tell lies to be popular or post things on social media that make you look better than you really are. If your idol is achievement, you will tread on people to get your way. If your idol is family, you will continually be hurt by how they let you down. If your idol is money, the only currency in life that matters will be money, to the expense of relationships, physical health, and maybe a moral compass. If your idol is relationships, you could never contemplate being happy and fulfilled without one, and therefore you'll make bad choices in relationships. If your idol is power, you'll become proud and insecure as you rank yourself to those above or below you. Do you see? It's the counterfeit gods in our lives that determine our behavior, determine who we are. And therefore, gospel repentance confesses not the sins, but the thing that's driving the sin. It's the idol. The sin beneath the sins. Flip it around. If I'm loose with my tongue, it's because I find my worth in people's acceptance rather than Jesus. If I'm greedy with my money, it's because I find security in my bank account rather than Jesus. If I'm sexually immoral, it's because I find my happiness in sexual relationships rather than Jesus. Let me work through the sex example. The only God-given context for sex in the scriptures is the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It's a strange and offensive idea in modern culture, but the Bible is very clear. It's the only context for sex within the covenant of a marriage between one man and one woman. Now, let's say I'm struggling with sexual immorality which I am, by the way, because Jesus says, if you look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your hearts, and I've done that. So I'm an adulterer, as are you. We're all sexual sinners. No one has the high ground. But let's imagine it's moved from my mind to my actions, and I'm sleeping with someone that's not my wife. Okay, I hope one of you guys, or many of you, some brothers and sisters in Christ, or challenge me and tell me to stop. But, if all you did was say, Steve, you know the Bible says sex outside of marriage is wrong, it might change my action. You wouldn't have helped change my heart by telling me the rules. I might still look at that woman lustfully while not committing physical adultery with her. What I need is therefore people to say to me, Steve, why do you run off after another woman? Was it the fun, the thrill, the chase, the pleasure? Did she give you some value because of who she was that you couldn't find in anyone else? It was when you were in her arms, you felt like someone? Was it escape? You know, life is stressful, and it was just a a place of release, a moment of peace. It It was a refuge. Do you see, there were just three, and there's more, three idols, three reasons why I'm running to the arms of another lady because of pleasure, because of value, or because of refuge, guess what? If you will help me discover my pleasure, my value, and my refuge in Jesus, I won't even be tempted to look elsewhere. You know, change my heart, not with the rules, but by Jesus, replacing the idol of pleasure, the idol of value, and the idol of security that I find in someone else. Change in behaviour sure has its place, but change in the heart through grace and gospel repentance of the sin beneath the sins. Now that's powerful and lasting. Do you see? Religion and the gospel, external, internal. Repentance is not so much doing bad things, but over-trusting in the good things. Because breaking rules is just a symptom of sin. Sin. The disease of sin is being your own saviour or trusting in something other than Jesus for your identity and worth. Religious repentance is abnormal. It's infrequent. Oh, I've blown it. I better repent, you know? That's important. Gospel repentance is natural. It's regular. It's day by day asking God to root out the idols in our hearts and replace it with his love. Religious repentance is all about the bad things. Gospel repentance is all about over-trusting the good things. Religious repentance is hard work. I'm atoning for my sin. I'm hurting myself until, God forgive me, I've paid. Gospel repentance is light. My sins are being paid for. And I'm returning to my Father. You see, so often we live as if they're not paid for, don't we? Our sins and we have to pay for them by our good works and our good behaviour and by you know, walking around miserable for ages as if you know, we're, we're, we're trying to earn our justification through good works. We're actually rejecting the gospel of grace and we need to repent of that too. Religious repentance feels bitter as I'm driven back to hard work. Gospel repentance feels sweet as I'm driven back to the arms of my Saviour. Gospel repentance sweetens and humbles me. It gives me joy and poise and stability. And all those enslaving idols are replaced by God's love. My attitude, my actions, my motivation, my perspective, all change, not from the outside in, because I know the rules, but from the inside out, because I know my Savior. How does real, lasting, internal, joyful, sweet change happen in your life? Know your identity through grace. Confess the sin beneath the sins. And thirdly, commit once again to God and his people. There's only one reason why God won't forgive you. It isn't because he doesn't want to, but it's because he's unable to. Are you saying the blood of Christ is not sufficient, Steve, for my sin? No. It's sufficient for all sins. He is able and he wants, but only if you'll turn to him. Anything can be repaired unless you don't think it needs to be repaired. Any wrong can be righted unless you don't think it's wrong. Any sin can be forgiven unless you don't think it's a sin. Without repentance, with repentance, anything can be repaired. Broken walls and broken hearts without repentance. Nothing can be repaired. So the final piece to lasting change is to commit yourself to God's ways and God's standards through repentance and faith. That's how Nehemiah chapter 9 ends. They relearn their identity through grace. They confess the sin beneath the sins, and they recommit to God's story and putting themselves back in his view of the world. So in chapter 10, which we didn't get into, uh, Rebecca read the first verse, we have a list, a huge list of those that go, hey, we're buying into this story again. People saying, yeah, and, and, and they signed the thing and they put their seals on it. It's like, we're committing again to this story. And they talk, if you read, carry on into chapters 10, 11, 12, I mentioned it last week, to recommitting themselves in four particular areas of life, in money, in sex, in power, and worship. And money was to be seen in worship, uh, to be given in worship in the temple and for caring for the poor. That's how money was to be stewarded. Sex was to be according to God's standards. I've spoken about that. Power was for service. You know, it's interesting. Modern culture says, be tight with your money and loose with your sex life. Biblical culture says, be tight with your sex life and loose with your money. Be generous with your money, but be careful with what you do with your sex life. Modern culture says, oh, it doesn't really matter about the sex scene, just make sure you hold on to your money. It's interesting. And Worship. Money, sex, power, and worship was to be the center of the people's lives. How do you replace idols in the heart through worship? To come, in, in that case, coming to the temple and praising God. So, not only was the law of Moses reinstituted in Nehemiah, but the songs of David. And we have all the choirs being reorganized and everything, all the musicians. And we've got to sing again. We've got to learn the story. We've got to sing the story into our hearts again through the songs of David. And they sign this binding agreement, a covenant. They fix their seals to it and say, we want to be God's people again in his story. They repented and they recommitted. So that's what we're going to do. Not through signing a binding agreement and stick with us if we're putting a seal on it. But the way Jesus told us to remember him and recommit. Through the bread and the wine. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. And the wine represents the blood that was poured out for us. This is a new covenant that Jesus said he was going to initiate. And he was going to be the Lord and the lover of our lives. If you've trusted Jesus as your savior, if you're committed to him as Lord, we invite you forward, whether this is your first time at CCC or you've been here many times. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you can't say, I've trusted him as Lord in all areas, or, you know, that's an aspiration or desire, but you know I want to and I've trusted him as savior for where I don't, then please remain in your seat and consider, do you wanna put yourself in the story? If you do, for the first time, come forward, take communion and then speak to us. For those that do come forward today, this is a time for corporate renewal. I want us to take a moment for you to say, I wanna remember again my identity that comes through grace, not through works, and to think about where do you try and form my identity through what you do? I want you to take a moment to confess the sin, the idols beneath the sins. Not the things you do wrong, but why do you do the things you do? What drives you that isn't Jesus? And take a moment to confess those. And then I want us to commit again to the story of God, a missionary God forming a people for himself. And we're one expression of that for the good of the city and the salvation of many.